Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners. Welcome back to our next segment episode of World of Wargaming. Today, we actually have a completely new perspective that we haven't experienced yet. Someone from outside the Marine Corps talking about wargaming. And I'm blessed to be here today with Jonna uh, Johnson from the company Nemertes. Jonna, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill, and thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So just uh, if you don't mind, give our audience a uh, just brief overview of your life. How did you uh, get to where you are here today? That is a great question. And thanks for starting with my life, because uh, I run a technology research company. We give advice and guidance to IT professionals at large organizations, uh, you know, anywhere from defense contractors to think tanks to advertising agencies. Um, but that is not exactly what I was, how I was brought up or necessarily what I was trained to do. Um, as I, as I mentioned to you previously, my dad was a naval officer. He was actually a, um, nuclear sub captain. Uh, it was the Woodrow Wilson, for those of you who are curious, Captain E.A. Till. Um, I grew up with him sort of as my guiding light, as I'm sure many of you have grown up with parents that you look up to that way. Um, frustratingly, he was not only a perfectionist, but he was usually right, uh, which was actually kind of annoying, but drove those tendencies in me. I would, I would, in later years, I would give him a project I'd work on, worked on just for, for months, and he would look at it and find the one error in it. That's the kind of guy he was. Um, I actually studied engineering as an undergrad and then went to graduate school for particle physics because I had this idea that I wanted to get a PhD and be a scientist. And I discovered what was going on in academia and thought, oh my God, I don't think I can survive. Science is great, academia is terrifying. <laughs> Hats off to those of you who've made a career from it because it's really hard to do, the academic part, not just the science part. So uh, when I dropped out of grad school and didn't really have much of an idea of what I wanted to do, I ended up bopping around, uh, worked as a journalist, a technology journalist for a while, and then an analyst, and then became chief technology officer of a global engineering company during the heyday of the dot-com era, and realized that technology is really fun because it changes really, really rapidly, and trying to figure out how what I call institutional technology can adapt and can use this technology is an ongoing problem that never gets old. And in some respects, my colleague, uh, Don Vandergriff, who comes at this from a very, very different perspective, it's sort of the same thing with military leadership and wargaming in general, it never gets old. All right, awesome. So let's let, let's kick it off then. So how are you, are you yourself a wargamer? I'm actually not. My friends are. Uh, I, believe it or not, all the way back, as far back as Dungeons and Dragons, I remember playing it once or twice and going, this is boring because at the time I had a very active fantasy life and made up stories in my head. And I was like, I don't need a multi-sided die to make up stories. But I always liked the idea of putting putting just enough framework around something so that multiple people could participate in the same game because the limits to stories in your own head are, it's just you. Um, that said, I, I kind of said, no, I'm not, but my company does wargaming. We call it cyber wargaming because in many, many cases, our clients need to deal with cybersecurity threats and how they would respond to them. And so we actually craft and deliver these cyber wargames. So in that sense, I am a wargamer because I really enjoy the process of building out the cyber wargame. So you're 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 more on the professional war game, or you do it professionally? Okay, that's that's awesome. So how did how did uh, you you come about starting to have a uh, cyber war gaming within your company? And also, if you don't mind, uh, what's the difference between just war gaming and cyber war gaming? 
Sure, I'll, I'll take that one first because it's straightforward. Cyber wargaming is wargaming around the theme of an, a particular cybersecurity attack. So you got hit with ransomware. Somebody has penetrated your systems. The people who are playing are usually playing themselves, i.e., uh, you're the head of security. You're the head of HR. What do you do now? Uh, kind of thing. So there's less um, there's less role playing. You have to be less familiar with someone outside yourself. But there's still that element of bringing here's reality. Now you have to respond to it quickly to the to the table. Um, cyber wargaming actually didn't used to be called that necessarily. Well. I should take that back. It used to be called uh, it used to be called security wargaming. Then it got called tabletop exercises, and now they're starting to call it cyber wargaming. But the the need for it has existed for a while. We've been offering it for at least ten years, where we work with companies to develop games and you know or tabletop scenarios, exercises, scenarios, whatever you want to call them. What really changed and what turbocharged what we offer is including I mentioned Don Vandergriff. And I met him online because, as I said, some of my friends are war gamers, and I connected with him, saw what he was doing, and realized, wow, this guy has managed to square the circle of taking a lot of hypothetical, theoretical ideas and putting them into the real world. And the key mechanism he uses for that is wargaming, and he is actually brilliant at it. He takes all these ideas such as mission commands, such as the OODA loop, and puts them in a way that users, participants, can learn. And I thought, wow, that would completely change the way we're able to do our cyber wargaming. And we revamped all of our wargaming offer offerings around his model. So, so how specifically did it evolve to incorporate uh, his model of mission command and also the OODA loop? How okay. specifically? Oh, so very specifically, what he does is he makes the wargaming super participatory. So he crafts out a scenario and then leads participants through a structured response to that scenario. And the structure is kind of the magic because what tends to happen is you start to realize mission command, for example, is all about I am the commander, I set the mission, I give you the goal and the the desire the goal and the desired outcome. So, you know, in a military war game, take this hill, it might be the goal, the desired outcome might be win the battle, the, you know, bigger desired outcome, of course, is win the war, right? Um, but the challenge is, how do you get that information to the troops? How do the troops then internalize that and use the ability, the freedom they get through a, a mission command approach to actually deliver on the goal and the outcome, even if they don't necessarily do the, follow the specific steps that the, the commander is getting? Either the the person setting the command, the mission commander, and the and the team leaders. Um, the OODA loop is also all about figuring out where you are in time, thinking through it, uh, and then analyzing, and then taking an action, and then repeating it. What what Don does is present a scenario that offers the same opportunities for the gap between expressing the mission and understanding the mission, and also op offers the same opportunities for people to practice the OODA loop in real life that real life does. And I'll give you kind of an example that's not cyber wargaming, but it was a really brilliant one. One of his scenarios is a true military scenario comes from uh, an event that, that happened in Somalia. And one of the things that was going on in Somalia was there was an active buyback, weapons buyback program to demilitarize the civilians because of course, 
you know, the, the insurgents were actually trying to militarize, you know, children as young as six. So there's a whole scenario where there's a six-year-old holding a gun. And we were teaching, Don and I were teaching this to a police force. And it was really eye-opening because the police force saw the child with the gun, didn't know quite what to do, but they had to take action quickly. So at least one of the teams chose to, you know, blow the kid away, as in their words. And then as we were doing the facilitated exercise, I just raised my hand because I had done this scenario, I raised my hand from the back of the room and said, um, does anyone remember, you know, Don, did you tell us that there was an active gun buyback program underway? And in the real scenario, the kid was actually returning a gun to the gun buyback program. I'll never forget the look on that police officer's face oh, when he turned to me. What he said was unprintable, but justified because he suddenly realized he in the game had just killed a kid who was innocent and for a police officer that's devastating of course and that he's never ever going to forget that and he's not ever going to forget the practical lesson that he learned which is you really have to understand the scenario before you take action i move too fast which is internalizing the ooda loop and i thought to myself there is no better way I, every time i think about how do you practice the OODA loop, I think about the look on that police officer's face. And he was a good officer, make no mistake. That's awesome. So uh, in, in terms of cyber war gaming, are you, how do you, uh, how do you uh, go against your opponent? Is it against an AI? Is it against already a system? Is it scripted? Is it open? Are you playing against another human? Like how, how is it? Uh, basically what we do is we sit down, we being Nimurdis, uh, sit down and have a look at uh, we, one of our one of our common sources, but it's not the only source, is the MITRE ATT&CK framework. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, and you probably aren't, it's one of the largest open source databases of all attacks that have been happening. So if you get attacked, generally you try to tell the database what happened, what was going on, what the actual vulnerabilities were that were exploited, who the attackers were, if that was understood, et cetera, et cetera. So this is kind of the, the best way to think about it is it's an ongoing database of the most current attacks. Then we select an attack that is appropriate to the client that we're working with. Uh, then we modify that attack, that particular cyber attack, to address the what we know the security vulnerabilities might be of the client, because it's usually somebody that we have some familiarity with. And then what we do is some behind the scenes sketching out the, the decision trees. So we focus on a key number of decisions which need to be made and that have consequences. And one of the key things that Don teaches is there's no right answer, there's just a consequence, you know, each, each decision has consequences. So we try to make sure that those consequences are as airtight as possible with the decision tree. Uh, so we sketch that out, we don't share that with the client. Then what we do is sit down with the client, share the scenario and say, okay, you, the people who are participating, you now must respond. Here's how you respond. Here's how much time you have to plan out your response. And here's how you deliver that response to us. And a lot of this is the, is kind of the magic because it's a process magic. You can, you, you give them just enough time so that they're stressed because there isn't enough time to really do it right, which is the real world and not too little time. So you want to get kind of both the off the cuff and maybe a second or third third thought, but you don't want to go any deeper. You don't want to give them you know, massive amounts of time to go do research because in the real world, they wouldn't have that time. Um, so in a sense, to answer your question, what they're doing, they can be anywhere from, typically we do up to about a group of 30. So it can be anywhere from about five or six people to a group of about 30. You need multiple people because then what happens is 
they go through, plan their responses, they do it in smaller groups, and then they critique each other. And that's really, really important if you have have set the set the groups so that they have the right components in each group, because that means you're going to be asking someone, why did you do that? And that person may be answering from a completely different perspective. Say one group might have the HR person on it and the HR person is seeing things through his HR filter and somebody else might have accounting and finance and they're seeing things through the accounting and finance filter and somebody else might have legal and all of them might have technical people with different areas of focus. So the networking guy is thinking about networking security and the database guy is thinking about database security, et cetera, et cetera. And so you start to realize, oh, wow, the environment that I'm responding to and the scenario is much bigger and more multifaceted than I realized, which gets back to that whole concept of mission command, which is really all about getting people to see the big picture. Mm -hmm. So they're competing in a sense against each other and against a real attack by real hackers that exist somewhere in the world and, and have done this to someone else. How does your, the system you use or like your, your cyber war gaming, um, apply like the OODA loop as in how like in terms of, like like the the opponent how are you try how are you trying to teach them to 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 break their OODA loop and, and enter it and then try to disrupt it for their own gain well the, the first one is we give the scenario and then we ask any questions and that's the observe orient piece of the OODA loop because people can say um you know that's where sometimes we will deliberately leave out a piece of information to be requested and we note if they forgot to request it because downstream that'll happen. Sometimes we'll give them the piece of information that goes in one ear and out the other, which is what happened with the, the gun buyback program. You know, we're not really going to, we're not going to try to trip people up by requiring them to ask a question that's so far afield that they would never do it in real life. So we give them a reasonable set of information, withhold some information that they should reasonably be asking about, and then see what happens. And they go through the observe orient, and then when we do the critique, it becomes clear when that information didn't penetrate. So that's where we break it. So then, the, of course, the decide act is kind of the next step where they have to figure out what to do and then go do it. And that, again, comes out in the, in the critique. So we have the, have the teams critique each other's courses of action, not from the standpoint of that was stupid, but why did you do that? And that allows us to really go back and say, you know, 99 times out of 100, people make rational decisions based on the knowledge base they have, but the knowledge base is flawed because they didn't do something right in the ooh, -ooh part of the OODA loop. Um, and kind of in my head, I kind of, I kind of deconstructed into something simpler because I can't hold too many complicated concepts in my brain. So I kind of think of ooh, -ooh as think and DA as act, and it's you know. Think and notice before you decide and act is really what's what the OODA loop is. And where I think most of us would agree is most people fall down on the observe and orient piece. People can take quick action. Some people freeze, but most many people take quick action. It just may, may not be the right quick action because they forgot the OO part of the OODA loop. That's, that's interesting. So then how the uh, results typically uh, been for when you, you host these uh, cyber war gaming? Uh, well, I was actually just looking through our testimonials this morning and they're off the charts. People say this was brilliant. And the reason they say it's brilliant is not because our scenarios are so great. 
uh, our scenarios are real world and we tailor them to the client and we use all of our you know years of expertise as cybersecurity experts to do that but honestly scenarios are scenarios you know you can anyone with a good knowledge of cybersecurity can build a scenario but the delivery causes people to really remember what they learned and it the the magic to don's approach is that it's participatory so in a very real sense you know, you guys play war games because they're fun, you learn, it's exciting, you get the adrenaline going, but war games are also absolutely critical in learning. You don't learn unless you do. And I know that people will say, oh, I learn from reading books, I learn from watching videos. No, you don't. Studies show that you retain only about 10% of what you learn by observing because you're not you're not invested in it. When you war game, you're suddenly invested in it because something bad is going to happen to you. The adrenaline is flowing, your, your attention is focused, and you behave entirely differently and lay down, in, in, your, in your brain, you are laying down different types of memories. So I will say that most of my friends who are war, are war gamers are much, I don't, I don't want to say much better informed, but have, have, taught themselves how to learn in a way that non-war gamers don't. So, you know, in a sense, this is almost a plug for what you guys do because war gaming is, is really, really important for learning. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an excellent point. So uh, you're doing, as, as I mentioned, as you mentioned, you're conducting uh, cyber war gaming. How has the nature of cyber threats uh, evolved since you started, uh, started Numerities and, the, uh, and your cyber war gaming program? Because that's a huge thing going on in the Marine Corps right now is looking at the cyber aspect of warfare. How have you noticed it evolved over over time since your experience has started? Um, well, just for just for context, I started Nemertes just over 20 years ago, um, hard to believe, uh, and it's evolved enormously. Back then, the the threat actor was, you know, as our, our previous president said, kind of memorably, was a you know 400 pound guy in his mom's basement. That wasn't quite true. But it really was kind of a very much an adolescent teenage boy trying to figure out, hey, can I break this? And you know, doing it for doing it for laughs and and kudos. Um, at this point, cyber war is no different than war. Uh, in fact, I keep pointing out to my clients, it's got lots of advantages over quote unquote real war. Number one, the biggest advantage is it's a hell of a lot cheaper. You just give a bunch of people, you know, access to the internet and let them go. And that's a lot less expensive than most of our, you know, most of our weapons and deli weapons delivery systems. Uh, secondly, you really have the the delight if you're an attacker, if you're a nation state, you can decide whether to take credit for something or not. If you're firing, you know, if you're firing a missile, people are going to notice that that missile has your thumbprint and notice that it started from, you know, one of your planes or submarines. Uh, so they're kind of going to know it was you. With cyber war, you can you can set it up to make it look like somebody else. You can set it up to make it look like you. You can claim credit at the most opportune moment for public relations, or never claim credit at all. That's really hard to pull off in real warfare. I say real. I w I should say physical warfare. Um, and what's happening now is we're getting to the point where you can increasingly generate the kind of devastation that you can in physical warfare with cyber war. Um, we've, we had some of the first fatalities due to attacks uh, a couple of years ago. There was a guy in Germany in a hospital, and the hospital was taken down, and the guy died. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And keep in mind that generally people don't fight wars to kill other people. They fight wars to get other people to do what they want to do, and you have a limited number of things you can do to make them do that. You can kill them, you can hurt them, you can hurt people that are near them, or you can blow up their stuff. And cyber 
cyber warfare is very good at blowing up the stuff and and getting people to that point of okay, I'll do what you want me to do and give you give you the resources you're you're going after. I was going to say requesting, but <laughs> going after by the war. Um, so what's really evolved to answer your question in short term in the the short version is we've gone from a model of just playing and and seeing what can be done to a model where almost every company and organization is a target from nation state actors who are doing this for reasons traditional warfare reasons that's 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 very interesting to bring that up so what are i guess the the standard types of scenarios in which you would see a nation state try to target one of your prospective clients or something um, well, there aren't really standard scenarios, uh, but they've definitely gotten into the ransomware. And, and just a, a, just because everybody knows what ransomware is, I'll stay on that for a little bit. Um, people think of ransomware as, oh, I want to get you know a million dollars from a company, so I freeze all their systems and ask for a million dollars in Bitcoin, and then off I go. Well, actually, um, when nation-state attackers go in, they might want the million dollars, but that's actually trivial. They want the information, and what they do is they set you up so you have to give them a million dollars or whatever it is to free up to free up your systems and now they have all the information that they captured they give you back your information but it's a copy so now they've obtained sensitive information and as with most military intelligence it's hard for lay people or lay companies or civilian companies to understand that what they have is information that's militarily valuable my mother tells a long story about in uh, in the 1970s noticing that we were shipping grain to Russia and realizing that their system was not generating enough grain at that point to keep their own people alive. And at the time, you know, we didn't we didn't know that or believe it. But if you see the grain shipments in Chicago and you realize they're destined for Russia and you kind of put two and two together, you say, wow, the system is deconstructing, is is collapsing from within. Well, nobody would have thought the grain shipments in Chicago were was military information, but it was. So companies that don't do anything even remotely related to defense still may have valuable information for nation, nation state attackers and threat actors. So that's that's an example of, oh, well, they're doing they're doing ransomware, but they're not doing it for the reasons that you think. The money is great, and they'll certainly pocket the money, but what they really need is the information, and it's actually a two-tier approach. It's a two-tier revenue stream for them because they get the information, they sell it to the threat actor because they may be freelancers. There's an entire there's an entire ecosystem of hackers where hackers sell their services to other hackers to who can bundle them and deliver a consolidated attack that then maybe so they sell the results of it to the nation state and the nation states don't care like hey great you go you go freelance then you're doing it not on my payroll yay this is even better it's usually cheaper for them so so that's the kind of thing that we look at that's uh, that's uh, that's incredibly interesting to see how the, the the process has has evolved over the past 20 years with uh so what what are you I guess like the standard you know tactics techniques procedures as Marines would talk about in terms of both um, preventing and repelling and 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 fighting back against these uh, sort of threats. Well, first off, Bill, that is that a Marine thing? Tactics, techniques, and procedures (TTP)? I, I know it's in the Marine Corps, uh, but I, I probably uh, probably the other service branches as well. 
No, I was just asking because I know it's in cybersecurity. I did not realize it came from the military. I thought it was one of those mm -hmm. things we thought up. But in fact, if you think about it, a lot of cybersecurity terminology and frameworks come from the military, the whole concept of a firewall, for example. Um, you know, there's, uh, I, I hate to be vague on this, but honestly, you get very quickly from high level down into the, you know, deep technical stuff. One of the things that's great about the MITRE attack matrix is that it tracks the TTPs and you can literally look them up and decide which ones you want to pull out because, you know, if it's a particular vulnerability on Microsoft, which a distressingly large number of them, the, the vulnerabilities are, then the, you know, the tactics and techniques may be X. If it happens to be on cloud, it's Y. And, you know, you, you what what's really necessary is a nice little layout that says, here's here's how they went at it. And then what we do, and that layout is done by MITRE, so we don't need to do it, but then what we do is translate that into what does that feel like and look like in your environment, knowing that you have, you know, 8,000 Windows servers of which, you know, 30% are off maintenance and non-patched, um, non for example, which is, again, distressingly accurate in a lot of cases. So we would pick the, we would we would create, we would look at what, some of the attacks are and then tailor them so that, okay, they're coming in through this particular vulnerability because we happen to know that you have it, basically. That's awesome. So in terms of, of cyber wargaming, how do you determine, I guess, your metrics for success or failure with your clients when they come to you? Like how, how do you know, like, congrats, you beat it off, or how do you know, or sorry, they have all your information and now and now you're screwed? Like what's, how do you, uh, how do well, you well, I that, guess, that, gauge well, there? There's two answers to that. That is actually the best question, and I'm so glad you asked that because the 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 first the first answer is well, that's where our expertise comes in, and it is actually where our expertise comes in. You know, we can look at something and say, all right, if you do this, this will be the consequences. So, for example, it turns out that if you are just to use a very simple example, you know, the big a big decision point in ransomware is do you pay the guys or not. Um, it turns out that uh, and and in fact. Side note, there was a, a senior executive from, I want to say Twitter, uh, I think it was Twitter, Was a, the former CISO of Twitter was um, recently uh, found guilty, convicted of the crime of actually paying for, uh, well, he wasn't actually convicted of the crime of paying for it, he paid for, he paid for ransom in an attack, but the issue was he had reason to believe that personal information had been compromised and he didn't tell the people that had the personal information. Um, well, what's actually kind of interesting is, in my mind, that's that's a very, very nebulous scenario because the government has gone back and forth on whether what it means to compromise personal information and whether or not it's okay to pay attackers. It turns out now that it's actually illegal to pay attackers if they are nation state attackers because there's a uh, there's a statute that says you're not allowed to give money to you know terrorists from hostile nation states mm -hmm. basically so if you or i just decided to attack and somebody paid us that would not be technically illegal if we did so in the service of russia or north korea or china whoopsie now you've just crossed the line so um what ends up happening there is you have to construct some sort of realistic scenario of what happens now and what happens now is likely that you know the ceo is hauled in to go talk to people in washington about you know the crimes that he's just committed right so in a sense you can say okay the success is avoiding any of the really bad outcomes and coming to an outcome that you can serve, you can tolerate but 
the reason I got excited when you said, how do you measure success? That's another key piece that's unique to the way we do cyber wargaming, which is we have built out and are in the process of rolling out. I won't say it's, it's rolled out, but we're in the process of rolling out ongoing measures of success that look at a broad portfolio of metrics that range from, and let's go back to the OODA loop for a second. Oh, no, sorry, let's go back to Mission Command for a second. One of the biggest challenges is that the mission commander gets across the idea of the mission and that the, the, the leader, the team leaders internalize it. Well, if you can met, if you can measure how well that communication is happening and see that it's on an improving trajectory over time, that's great. So if you can say my SecOps team, security operations team, is getting better and better at understanding the goals and delivering on them, that's fantastic. Um, you can also look at things like team cohesion which sounds like a very subjective measure, but thanks to Don's work, we have some very, very solid ways to objectively measure it. And that becomes important too, because if you can go back to the CEO and say, hey, our team started this and we were sort of all over the place, and now we've got a well-honed machine that kicks into action at the moment of a threat, and we can prove it because these metrics have been improving, that's really valuable. Then you also look at basic things like, you know, how long it takes to respond to things we have in cybersecurity and SecOps, the measure of median total time to contain a threat, MTTC. Uh, we use that as a good catch-all for how good your cybersecurity is generally. So you can sit down and say, well, since we started Wargaming, your MTTC has improved. Now, it could have improved because you bought a new tool, because you Im implemented other new processes, but at least it's another measure. And if you can say, well, that measure has been improving along with team cohesion, along with ability to internalize the mission, you can pretty much say that your cybersecurity wargaming has been a success. So long story short, having a set of objective and subjective measurements that together can point to effectiveness is really key and measuring on an ongoing basis is really key and that's something that we uniquely do as part of our cyber war gaming. Excellent, thank you for that. It's kind of interesting how you brought that up with the legal aspect of, especially considering the nature of cyber warfare, you, you don't know if you're dealing with, again, the 400 guy, a pound guy in his mom's basement or is he connected with with a, uh, a state actor or non-state uh, aggressor. That's, that's it's quite, you have to be, I guess it's emphasized you have to be very careful with that. So, you do uh, more broadly. So, mm -hmm. excuse me, sorry. I was just going to say you do, and one of the things to be aware of is you want to look for the digital thumbprints of nation-state actors to keep yourself on the on the right side of the law. So there's just like general patterns you recognize from from that's 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 incredible. So how do you uh, view, I guess, the uh, more broadly the the role of wargaming in businesses you know, going forward? Um. Businesses should be doing so much more of it than they are. Uh, and I was delighted the other day to talk to a client who, for the first time in my experience, said, we actually wargame around various scenarios. Um, cyber wargaming is obvious, partly... ...equipped from a process perspective to respond to, 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 respond to a breach. But there are so many other things. Now, we work with IT, so I'm going to focus on IT. But more broadly, what-ifing and scenario building allows you, the big advantage is that you are now you've created a library of scenarios and potential responses and potential consequences to those responses so that when something's happening, instead of going, 
oh crap, what do I do? You're going, hang on, that would be an example of scenario X, Y, Z, and here's the outcome if I do this, this, so let's do this other thing. And you can you can react much more quickly and effectively. And our you know corporate motto is better data, better decisions. Uh, I see wargaming as a way of getting that data and making those decisions better and faster, which can make all the difference. Thank you. So what resources would you recommend for especially civilians, but even military people as well, for understanding uh, the concepts and principles of mission command and the OODA loop? Uh, that is a great question. I would say start by Googling Don Vandergriff, Don, Donald Grand Vandergriff. He has written books on the on the topic. He's got presentations. He has tried every which way from Sunday to get these ideas out. We're also going to be launching a, a series of webinars this uh, this year talking about this in, in sort of layperson's terms, um, starring, of course, Donald Vander Vandergriff, because these are his ideas. Um, I think you know also joining communities i believe that's where you guys met on one of the online communities for wargaming there are lots of places where you can go to learn this and to see it in practice and meet some of the practitioners and meet some of the you know champions and and really understand how the people who know this do it we've made some really good friends online with people who are in our very unusual venn diagram overlap of technologists who are avid wargamers and it's actually a fairly a fairly big overlap because a lot of technologists grew up, you know, playing playing Dungeons and Dragons if they're as old as I am, or other war games, other online games, and just love the concept. Well, awesome! Thank you very much. It's very relevant these days. I mean, if, you, if for all of our listeners who read the Marine Corps, is that cyber warfare is is not going away, and it's going to get more brutal and ugly as time goes on. So this is definitely something that needs to uh, be considered. Do you have any uh, final comments or thoughts before we uh, before we have to part ways? Um, I think I think just following on to what you said, you know, originally when you, you kind of ask yourself, why would someone who, you know, who creates content for the Marine Corps want to talk to somebody who has a technology research firm? You'd say these people have nothing in common. There's no overlap. But as you can see, and I hope people have picked up from this podcast, everything is converging. Cyber warfare is warfare. So cyber wargaming is wargaming. Wargaming is the reason it's so important for the military is the same reason it's so important for business. And I would highlight the fact that business generally tends to adopt almost all of its processes from the military. We let you go, guys go figure out what works, and then we adopt it. And so the very fact that we have a command and control structure in in business, you know, typically has a command and control structure, comes from military practices of 200 years ago. Well, guess what? <laughs> you know, it's not 1770 whatever anymore. And it makes an awful lot of sense to start adopting the principles of mission command. Meanwhile, over here in business, we've come up with these ideas called DevOps, for example, which is an agile, which is this idea that instead of taking a highly structured approach to developing code, you just throw a couple people in a room and let them hash out something that kind of works. Uh, and the magic is in the couple people and the process for coming up with it. What we found is that DevOps doesn't work very well without mission command uh, and principles because the people that come up with the ideas don't feel empowered to execute on them because they've grown up in the command and control structure that still dominates most of programming. So the point is, everything is converging. The ideas and practices from the military are getting deployed in business and ideas and practices from business are getting deployed in the military. In fact, I think the, the Air Force has a, an active program on this called Tesseract, which basically says 
let's go figure out how businesses are, are innovating and making lasting change at scale and take their best practices into the military so that we can make this a bi-directional knowledge transfer, not just the military figures it out and then we all learn from the military. Well, John, I appreciate you coming in here today and uh, speaking to us about this. Uh, is there anywhere uh, people can, you know, any uh, social media plugs you'd like to get out there before we close? Uh, absolutely. Please go ahead and look at me and Don up on LinkedIn. That's Don Donald Vandergrift or Jonna Till Johnson. Um, also, if you'd like to talk to us about these ideas, please hit our website. It's Nemertes, N-E-M-E-R-T-E-S dot com. Fill out the form uh, that says community. Note that you heard about us on the show and we will invite you to join the community and come chat with Don uh, online. Hey, awesome. Well, thank you very much. And everyone out there, enjoy yourself. Uh, keep wargaming, keep getting those uh, reps and sets in and uh, stay safe, everyone. Bye. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding. But you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.